All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. We learn together, we learn better together, and the beauty of this room, like we always say, is the communal wisdom. So I think we can come up with the right definition of love. Just kidding. We do want to hear from a few people. What was said in your group? What did you have to share? I want to hear about what love means. I heard some beautiful definitions of love as I kind of walked around a little bit. Does anybody want to share about their definition? Oh, there we go. Hello. I think one of the common threads um, in our discussion was um, patience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to sacrifice for others that you love. Um, we also talked about how there's a, a bunch of different kinds of love. Mm. Like the love for your cat's going to be different than the love for your husband. That's going to be different from the love from God. And mm -hmm. um, so there's, for me, there's not one single definition. But I agree with commitment as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it's always a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. You don't have to agree with commitment. That's fine. That's, that's, that's my working definition for me and why. Um, we heard some, another beautiful definition of love. Anyone? Somebody. Anybody. Let me. Hello. Um, hi. Uh, I said in our group accountability, and Ooh. not in the sense of you own this person or own this thing, but as you just brought up like a dog, I'm like, yeah, if you have a dog, you have to be accountable to like feeding that dog, taking care of that dog. And so it doesn't matter what living being it is, whether it's a child, a baby, a person, a friend, love is like you're choosing to be accountable mm. and you're choosing to like show up, mm -hmm. so. Thank you for sharing, that's beautiful. So a couple things we talked about is what love is not. Love mm. is not fear, so mm -hmm. fear and love don't coexist and selfishness don't coexist with love, so if you're selfish, you can't love, so. Mm. That's so good. Oh. Extra credit. Go ahead, Steven. <laughs> so I'm going to piggyback my brother here on accountability. <clears throat> so this may not be a full definition, but I believe it is important in lo loving people. So to me, like commitment, especially when people get married or make a commitment of any kind, I, I'm committed to you, I respect you, I love you. But if you're not interested in how I want to be loved, then that's a huge thing. Yeah. So I can say I'm committed to you for 20 years, but never figured out how to love you. Mm -hmm. And I want to love you. I want to be loved. So Stephen Berkeley, I want you to know how to love me, mm -hmm. not just say that you love me. And if I spell it out and tell it to you, this is how I want to be loved, mm -hmm. then that's part of the definition too. Mm. Goodness gracious, yeah. The platinum rule, yeah. Treating others as they ask to be treated. That's beautiful. Double extra credit, come on, we're about it today. Hi guys. Uh, anybody here from Philly? Okay. You better not. Philly. It's, it's the city of brotherly love. So that's, that's the most basic kind of love, that filio love, the brotherly love. Um, classically, there's three types, brotherly, and then there's eros, which is the romantic sort of love. And then you have agape, which is the selfless love towards others. So those are the three type of basic, brotherly, romantic, and then selfless love, which is like the unconditional love. And then you also have self-love, right? That's what our culture 
kind of has today is kind of the focus on self and loving yourself and that's good to a point because you have to love yourself to be able to love others mm. but sometimes that could be taken too far and mm. too extreme so it's a little better to focus on those three foundations of love and mm -hmm. work with those what i heard you say is like when loving myself comes at the cost of you being able to love yourself or when it when it compromises love a communal sense of love when it violates you some people many of us if not all of us in this room have experienced when someone's love for themselves is really strong and that actually violates my ability to love myself or cherish myself or hold myself tenderly uh, things that i heard around the room extraordinary coming to scripture of that the jewish tradition perceived love looked like liberation love looked like a god who would send us beyond what we ever could imagine love looked like the god who would be with us in slavery and set us free liberate us teach us to live a liberated life in the wilderness this god god's love looks like liberating us in the midst of exile of a babylonian exile an Assyrian exile, to be loved and liberated from the colonial kind of treatment of the Romans at the time. And this is the world that Jesus enters into. The Romans are occupying most of the Middle East, that, that kind of region around Italy there, and Palestine, the space where Jesus grows up, is now a Roman occupation. This is a problem because some of the religious tradition, people who are longing to conserve the power and the tradition they've been handed are now making compromises to be in tandem with the Roman government. A conservative pathway, conserve what we've created. Some of, we would call some of these people Pharisees. And I don't blame them, they're, they're trying to be strategic about how do we conserve what we've been given. How do we hold the tradition we've been given? And it becomes about the rules of the tradition, how we keep this thing going, how it was given to us. Now, there becomes a progressive group of people, this small community that leaves kind of out into the wilderness, and they begin to live a new expression of the ancient tradition that they were given. Does that remind you of anybody? A small community little bit separate from some of the other communities of really radical believers, still believers in the tradition, but living a new expression of the ancient tradition. Sound familiar to anyone? Okay, anyway, okay, anyway. So when Jesus grows up, this is the world he grows up into. He grows up in Nazareth, the hood of the hood. Galilee, nothing good comes from Galilee. But for sure, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Now, you, nothing good comes from Galilee, but for sure, nothing good comes from Nazareth. But this is where Jesus comes from. This is the city and the world he comes from. For me, I would imagine Jesus, one of the, the, the most disorienting beliefs for him. I am the illegitimate son of my mom. My dad's family wouldn't even take us in when my mom was feeling contractions. We had to go back home because they're taking the census, pay the taxes, do all that stuff, and nobody in our family would even take us into the home. 
because they didn't believe in my mom being pregnant with me. And I can imagine him being made fun of by his cousins. This is the bastard child. He's not. He, so I can see this being a disorienting belief within him. And this is where, for me, we find ourselves in the text. I'm going to read from the First Nations version in Mark chapter 1. You'll see the text on the screen behind me. This is this moment. I think another thing that's important for context about this moment, the, the text will say this is about cleansing. This is a religious tradition about cleansing. This is also about identification. Who will Jesus identify himself with? Will he be baptized into the tradition that's conserving power, or will he be baptized into that radical small tradition, off-center of power, living a new expression of this ancient tradition? This is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It was in those days that creator sets free, Jesus, came from his home in seed planter village, Nazareth in the territory of Circle of Nations, Galilee, to have gift of goodwill, John, performed for him the purification ceremony. Was a mature man of about 30 winters. The time had come for him to show himself to all the people and begin his great work. He waded out into the river to have gift of goodwill perform the ceremony. As soon as as creator sets free, came up from the water, he saw the sky open. The spirit of creator came down like a dove and rested on him. And then a voice from the sky spoke like distant thunder. This is my much loved child who makes my heart glad. And right then, and there, the Spirit drove Creator sets free into the desert wilderness. For 40 days and nights, he remained there, surrounded by wild animals and being tested by accuser, Satan, the ancient trickster snake. Spirit messengers also came to give him strength and comfort. To me, what really, really stands out about this passage me saying really, really twice kind of threw me off. That's okay here. <laughs> what stands out to me about this passage that I didn't hear growing up is that this is a personal encounter with the divine. It doesn't say that everybody standing out here on the beach of the river heard what happened. It doesn't say that everybody saw the dove come out of the, the sky and land on Jesus. It says he saw it. He felt it. He felt God confirm his voice and validate his identity and answer some of these deep questions he had in himself. He, he did the next right step that he knew in front of him, and then he encountered something that spoke directly to him and spoke into this question for him. This wasn't something that everyone else heard around him. For me, when I imagine what that means and what that could have felt like, about what it looks like for us. Many of us in the room know what it looks like to stand on a personal encounter with God. And we have to look people in the face who didn't hear what we heard, 
haven't seen what we've seen or felt what we felt and communicate, this is how I've encountered God. The creator has met me in this deep place of questioning. For me, I walked away from my family of origin with some deep questions about my adequacy. Oh, I, I must be inadequate to have a family member treat me this way. I must not be enough for them to watch my family go through what we went through and to not be able to make change or to change what was happening. I walked away from that feeling powerless. What can I do here? And on birthdays when you promised to be there, this one day in the year when I thought I could trust you would be there and you said you would and you weren't, I felt alone. And these deep wounds, they marked me. And I brought those along the way and along the journey. I bring those into my partnership with Karen that I talked about earlier. And so when she's looking at me and she's telling me what she's feeling, those wounds are being rubbed on. And there is scar tissue there. There is healing there. But there's also still these behavior patterns and habits that the ways that as a child, I made sense of the world. Our inner child, you think of a child, we don't, we don't choose how we make meaning. It's reaction. So when you say something, even as an adult, my inner child can feel a thing. And it can want to react in the ways that preserve me as a child. But those ways that preserve me as a child, they won't preserve me or help me flourish and transform and grow and mature as an adult. What I love about what happened in this text here is that Jesus then goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And it says that he confronts the accuser. I think about all the voices that we hear in our lives, the ways that we are grown and we have worked really hard to be as healthy as we are. And still there are times when we feel accused, when the deep wounds of our heart, they get triggered and we're like, yo, I know I'm healthier than this, but this is really disorienting me. This is really jacking me up right now and I feel like it shouldn't be, but it is. We've all kind of had these adapted ways of being. We've created personas and personalities and partnerships and whole lives around how we've adapted to what's happened to us. I love that Jesus senses this, this is who I am. My mom always told me this is who I was, but now I know this is who I am. And this sense of love liberates him to now go love others in a radical way. And then to go teach really radical things. I'm like them. Whatever you do to those people, the people you think should have the least amount of rights, the people you think shouldn't be able to get married, the people you think don't have a right to have a home, the people whose economics you don't care about, I'm with them. And whatever you do to them, you've done to me. I know you've heard it said that you shouldn't treat people like this. I'm telling you the beginning of that thought starts with thinking that they're a fool thinking you know better than them, not being able to listen. And all of that rooted in this moment where he is affirmed by God, validated personally, and then I love this idea that he would go to this space by himself and confront the voices within him. Whenever I imagine Jesus doing the prayer or going off in the morning early, like the scriptures say, I imagine him reminding himself, 
I am God's beloved child. And I make God's heart glad. Trying to ground himself in that truth. Yo, if these brothers don't start managing our money different, these brothers, these brothers crowd controls is trash. These brothers keep letting everybody follow me everywhere. Man, I'm trying, I just need one moment. Whatever Jesus is dealing with, I just imagine those, those morning prayers specifically rehearsing this moment. Like I know many of us in this room have re- had to rehearse the moments where we grasped a little bit of healing and transformation and truth. We had to rehearse it. We had to keep reminding ourselves of that. To practice what it meant to be loved. To practice wholeheartedness and wholeness and remind ourselves of who we really are. So in this moment, I want you to turn to the same people you talked with before. And I want you to answer this question. How can you practice greater belovedness in your life? Let me start. That's a tough, you know, y'all look like, y'all, y'all trying to, hey, I can't wait to get in my group. All right. For me, one of the ways that I practice belovedness is I've created mantras around some of those deep wounds in my life. So for me, the inadequacy thing, um, powerlessness, I remind myself that I am powerful. I remind myself that I'm more than enough. And some of those truths, back to what Jesus did too, it wasn't based on his behavior. God said something outside of time and space that's forever, and no one can question that. And God has said something about us outside of time and space that no one can question. And that's you are God's beloved child, and God will always be proud of you. And you make God's heart glad, glad, like super happy, like like you a lot, like you're the VIP. Like, yo, get him seven tables, get her 12 tables, and bring all the tequila for me, or whatever it is for you. Yo, that's my dog. That's you are my beloved child. So for me, it looks like in the morning, meditation, mantras of reminding myself, and and different days is different things that I'm being accused of, and different challenges that are causing me to question myself. And guess, as a child of the creator, I get to create mantras that deal with those very same things. And we have scriptures and books. This scripture is like the stories and traditions of people long before us. This room is filled with living scripture of people who've encountered God and have created mantras of how to be whole and wholehearted and courageous in the midst of these voices and the wounds that we carry. So now that we are better prepared, potentially, would you go back to those people and say, how can you practice greater belovedness in your life?